This Friday afternoon, as most people were winding down their work weeks, with many perhaps looking forward to watching Super Bowl 56 played this coming Sunday evening in Los Angeles, a couple of Russian-Ukrainian invasion tweets from PBS reporters kicked both the crude oil and comics gold derivative markets in the respective behinds. U.S. National Security Advisor was quick to follow up with the following statements in a televised press conference. As we've said before, we are in the window when an invasion could begin at any time, should Vladimir Putin decide to order it. I will not comment on the details of our intelligence information, but I do want to be clear. It could begin during the Olympics, uh, despite a lot of speculation uh, that it would only happen after the Olympics. As we've said before, uh, we are ready either way, should Russia choose to take military action. Our response would include severe economic sanctions with similar packages imposed by the European Union, the United Kingdom, Canada, and other countries. It would also include changes to NATO and American force posture along the eastern flank of NATO. And it would include continued support to Ukraine. If Russia proceeds, its long-term power and influence will be diminished, not enhanced, by an invasion. It will face a more determined transatlantic community. It will have to make more concessions to China. It will face massive pressure on its economy and export controls that will erode its defense industrial base. And it will face a wave of condemnation from around the world. If, on the other hand, Russia truly seeks a diplomatic outcome, it should not only say so, it should pursue that diplomatic outcome. We are prepared to do that. We have put concrete proposals on the table. They are now out there for the world to see. We're prepared to engage on them and to discuss the principles and parameters of European security with our European partners and with Russia. Any American in Ukraine should leave as soon as possible and in any event in the next 24 to 48 hours. We obviously cannot predict the future. We don't know exactly what is going to happen. But the risk is now high enough and the threat is now immediate enough that this is what prudence demands. If you stay, you are assuming risk with no guarantee that there will be any other opportunity to leave and there no prospect of a U.S. military evacuation in the event of a Russian invasion. If a Russian attack on Ukraine proceeds, it is likely to begin with aerial bombing and missile attacks that could obviously kill civilians without regard to their nationality. A subsequent ground invasion would involve the onslaught of a massive force. With virtually no notice, communications to arrange a departure could be severed and commercial transit halted. No one would be able to count on air or rail or road departures once military action got underway. Now again, I'm not standing here and saying what is going to happen or not happen. I'm only standing here to say that the risk is now high enough and the threat is immediate enough that prudence demands that it is the time to leave now. While commercial options and commercial rail and air service exist while the roads are open, the President will not be putting the lives of our men and women in uniform at risk by sending them into a war zone to rescue people who could have left now but chose not to. So we are asking people to make the responsible choice. With that, I'm happy to take your questions. Yeah. 
Only two days ago, Reuters reported that the European Central Bank is preparing banks for a possible Russian-sponsored cyber attack, as the region braces for a possible financial fallout and conflict. Britain's National Cybersecurity Center warned large organizations to bolster their cybersecurity resilience amongst the deepening tensions over Ukraine. Britain's Financial Conduct Authority said it was contacting financial firms to draw their attention to NCSC's warning. The White House has also blamed Russia for the devastating NotPetya cyber attack in 2017 when a virus crippled parts of Ukraine's infrastructure, taking down thousands of computers in dozens of countries. Highlighted in this article, the fourth image slide was a picture displaying a message demanding Bitcoin as a ransom payment on an ATM monitor at a branch of Ukraine's state-owned Ashan Bank after Ukrainian institutions were hit by a wave of cyber attacks in Kiev, Ukraine, June 27, 2017. Hello there, on behalf of SDBullion.com, this is James Anderson with a quick SDBullion market update. Before we go further, please smash the like button so other sound money stackers can also see this content. And be sure to subscribe to our SD Bullion channel so you can get our latest market coverages and also a chance at winning incredible Bullion giveaways like this one. Raise your hand if you like free stuff. We were going to give away a free tube of the brand new 2022 Silver Eagle coins. Then we said, nah, make it 25 tubes. SD Bullion is at it again with the Silver Eagle Monster Box sweepstakes. How many coins are in a monster box? Let's just say one lucky participant is going to be showing off their best celebratory dance moves with 500 shiny new silver bird friends. So head over to sdbullion.com backslash sweepstakes for your chance to win. Click the link below to enter our new 500-ounce American Silver Eagle Coin Type 2 Giveaway Contest. And good luck to all of you who take part. Turning to monetary precious metals trading action for the week, bolstered by the aforementioned escalating Russian invasion reports, as well as, again, higher-than-expected consumer price inflation data reported yesterday. Both the silver spot price and gold spot price rose in trading this week, with the gold-silver ratio falling below 79 the silver spot price closed the week just over $23.50 an ounce, with gold closing above an important $18.50 an ounce level and possibly breaking a technical resistance zone that gold has been consolidating within over the last year and a month of time. It'll be important to see a strong follow-up by gold in this coming Sunday night and Monday's comics trading session. On this coming Monday as well, the Fiat Federal Reserve will hold a meeting just before noon under expedited procedures, a review and determination by the Board of Governors on the advance and discount federal fund rates to be potentially raised. We'll see if any news or market-moving events come forth next Monday from this meeting. Turning to supposed price inflation data from January 2021 to January 2022, which came in higher than expected yesterday, we're going to again go over just a few important reasons why this will likely be persistent and growing yet still in terms of inflation, at least until something breaks in the financial markets and another deflationary run for liquidity event returns. Charlie Bellello points out some eye-watering price escalations year on year, and the most important of which is the understated lie about the price increase of shelter by the U.S. government's Bureau of Labor and Statistics. He cites that shelter is the single biggest component of the BLS's Consumer Price Index, or CPI, report. Shelter makes up one-third of the index, and it's currently underreported at 4.4%, with household owners 
guessing as to what they might rent their home in BLS polls versus actual rents in the USA, which have gone up 18% year on year, and U.S. house prices, which have gone up 19% over the same time frame. Now, real price inflation is likely in the teens. Which cities have had the largest increases in rent? According to Redfin, here they are. Jim Bianco published the University of Michigan's Consumer Sentiment Index, and it's been crashing of late with the current level not seen since April 2020, back when the world was locked down, of course. And we are also now nearing levels so low that have not been seen since the 2008 global financial crisis. Now, if you've been watching this SD Bullion channel, you likely recall this long-term U.S. dollar M2 fiat currency supply versus inflation chart. The black line illustrates how much the currency supply has grown on a year-on-year basis in percentage terms. Recently, it peaked at 25% year-on-year not long ago. It's now hovering at a still historically high level of around 13% M2 fiat currency supply growth year-on-year. And look at the red price Look at the red price inflation line. Back during the last time the USA had an outsized debt-to-GDP situation this bad. And you can see how we dealt with it back then. The chart illustrates that price inflation ripped near 20% per annum following World War II. Even popular and supposed normies in our modern podcasting social media culture are now openly mocking currently rigged and understated inflation data. And not merely supposedly conservative podcasters only, but also highly followed left-leaning ones are pointing out the hedonic adjustment inflation lies and fiat currency supply rampings ongoing. Just a few weeks ago, this content hit many progressives' eardrums and eyes. How much currency that has been sort of created out of thin air has been added into this economy through the Fed. What would you put as a figure? Would it be six trillion? Is that too much? It would be, yeah, six trillion in in terms of deposits with the banks and currency. Be six to seven trillion. Okay. That they're that they're just injecting into it sort of out of nothing. Uh, out of nothing. They're they're the the, the central <laughs> bank of the United uh, States. Now, oh my think God. About it. It's just another form of government debt. Am I, am I making sense? It, you know, it makes sense in the make-believe world of conjuring. Like, there is a certain part of this that all feels like a mirage to some extent. Do you know what I mean? It, it all oh, yeah. seems sort yeah. of fake. Well, it, it is, it's, it's a fiduciary system. It's all right. faith-based, right? <laughs> oh, my Lord. Yes, you got to have confidence in that currency, in that dollar, because there's nothing back and there's no gold backing so it. So it's no- it's in some ways it's a mass delusion. Well, that's a harsh word, but uh, <laughs> it, so long as you have faith, yes. Yeah. Well, you might see it today, right? In terms of with all this printing, you see these cryptocurrencies, these bitcoins, right? Which are basically virtual currencies and faith-based. To and some faith-based. Extent. Moving to end this week's update with a reminder of an era the last time the Fiat Federal Reserve note got taken to a full accounting by a rapidly escalating gold price, we look back to the early 1980s, back when U.S. government debt and unfunded liability promise files were minuscule compared to where they are today. 
back when the Fiat Federal Reserve Chairman, Paul Volcker, was able to jack the Fiat Federal Reserve's fund rates, known simply as interest rates, to those white spikes that you can see in the top left side of the chart here. They were touching nearly 20% per year interest rates at the time. Back when the old early 1980s price inflation CPI data was much more accurate than it is today. John Butler and Barry Downs, looking at the life and times of former Federal Reserve Governor John Exeter, perhaps the last honest central banker, a leader in the sound money fight against Richard Nixon, Alan Greenspan, and the debasement of the U.S. dollar throughout his life. The source material for the following I'm going to read to you is from John Exeter's Collected Papers and Works, The Personal Experiences, Diary Entries, and Recollections of the Author and interviews with former colleagues, friends, and family of John Exeter's. Following is a description of a meeting between Paul Volcker and John Exeter in the early 1980s. It was a fine spring day in Washington, D.C. John Exeter was in town on private business and advising a wealthy client as to her substantial investments. When his friend and former New York Fed colleague Paul Volcker, chairman of the Federal Reserve, learned that John was in the neighborhood he dropped everything in his diary that day and requested that John come by his office. John agreed and later that afternoon arrived at Volcker's office for a three-hour chat. At the time, the U.S. was in a recession, by far the deepest since the Second World War. Yet inflation was stubbornly high. And when he assumed the Fed chairmanship in 1979, Volcker had promised to bring inflation down at all costs. But by 1981, amid soaring unemployment, he was coming under unprecedented public criticism for a Fed chairman. Members of Congress from both parties were demanding that he be fired. It didn't help that he was a lifelong Democrat, yet serving under a Republican president and a Republican-controlled Congress. Yet what really hit home was criticism from the common man, out of work and suffering for Volcker's bitter monetary medicine. John Exeter was astounded that day to discover that against the walls of Volcker's office were stacked piles of one-foot planks of lumber sent by unemployed construction workers in protest at the many building projects canceled as a result of record high interest rates. Some of the two-by-fours were even personalized. On one was written, Because of your high interest rates, Mr. Volker, I've lost my job, my wife has divorced me, and I'm losing my teeth and hair. You no good SOB. Volker clearly needed some reassuring advice from those he respected most. There was a long backstory to the economic mess the U.S. was in at the time, in the 1960s, as U.S. government began to run chronic budget deficits, albeit incredibly mild by today's debate standards, John and others had warned that this would lead eventually to a run on the U.S. gold stock, a sharply weaker dollar, and a surge in price inflation. He was right on all counts. Now, over a decade later, Volcker had been tasked with dealing with these nasty consequences. By 1980, Alongside accelerating money growth, U.S. interest rates had soared into the double digits, as had unemployment. Congress scheduled special hearings on monetary policy, a blatant attempt to pressure the Volcker Fed to relent in the fight against inflation. Volcker refused to even consider doing so. The Fed would continue to let the money supply dictate interest rates and thereby dictate the path of economic growth, inflation, and unemployment. In sharp contrast to his relentless, determined public persona in private, Volcker felt somewhat different. In 1981, with money supply growth still accelerating, interest rates at nearly 20% and no end to the stagflation yet in sight, Volcker was at its wit's end. He had simply not expected the fight against inflation could have escalated to this point. 
That spring afternoon, he reached out to John for any advice he might be able to provide. John was regarded by Volcker and his counterparts around the world as the central banker's central banker. Part retired since the early 1970s, he had been active in banking in the U.S. and abroad since the 1940s, and had served as vice president of the New York Federal Reserve, senior vice president of First National City Bank, and first governor of the Central Bank of Sri Lanka, founded in 1950 following the independence of Ceylon from India a few years earlier. He was also an active investor. In the 1960s, he not only warned against the policies that he believed would lead to a dramatic devaluation of the dollar and rise in the price of gold, but witnessing but witnessing that his advice was going unheeded by those in greater power than in influence, he positioned his investments so as to profit from them, and he did, handsomely. Following his retirement from Citibank in 1971, he went into private consulting work and managed his by then substantial fortune. He specialized in gold and gold mining investments and sat on the board at ASA Limited. His clients included wealthy investors in the U.S. and around the world. No other U.S. banker of the time had such extensive domestic and international private public banking experience. None had his degree of foresight to invest their savings as John had, accumulating a large holding of gold and gold mining shares. He had literally seen it all and had predicted much of what it what he eventually saw, including what was unfolding in the U.S. in the spring of 1981. Retired or not, John never shied away from offering helpful, if potentially harsh, advice when asked. So when a desperate friend asked for John's help, he was only too pleased to provide it. That said, John could have responded with an entirely justified degree of schadenfreude. After all, Volcker had been active in U.S. policy circles since the 1960s and was among those who had not always heeded John's advice. But schadenfreude was not in John's character. Rather, he went straight to offering his friend his best, honest economic advice. He suggested to Volcker that, in his view, he had already restored the Fed's credibility as an inflation fighter, that money supply growth would soon begin to trend lower, and that the battle, as it were, had now been won, and it was the time for the Fed to start easing interest rates to stabilize the economy. Volcker found it hard to believe what he was hearing. He had expected John to recommend more of the same, to stay the course, even higher interest rates perhaps, or tighten bank reserve requirements, some form of tough economic love, whatever was required to break the back of rampant inflation. Yet John argued that this had already been accomplished, that Volcker could now begin to ease off the monetary breaks. How could he know that? Perhaps it takes a true monetary hawk to know when Federal Reserve policy is convincing and credible and when it is not. John was a highly accomplished and experienced economist, highly accomplished and experienced John was a highly accomplished and experienced economist and had an extensive analytical toolbox for which he could draw. In any case, Volcker appears to have followed John's advice and began to ease interest rates within weeks of their meeting. Not long thereafter, money supply growth indeed began to slow, as did the rate of price inflation. By 1982, the inflation rate had fallen to under 3%, yet the economy was beginning to, cover, yet the economy was beginning to recover sharply. The stock market rallied, growth rates picked up, unemployment declined, and yet inflation remained low. The dollar grew stronger. Not only was the recession over, the battle against the dreaded stagflation had been won. John Exeter had been proven right yet again in his predictions. Yet there was another interesting topic of discussion late that spring afternoon, 1981, the topic of gold. Volcker knew that John was an expert in gold and gold investments, and he asked him what he thought of the outlook. John explained why he believed that gold served as an insurance policy against financial calamity, but then he went further. He predicted how someday, perhaps when it was least expected, 
there would be a sudden debt crisis. Investors would rush into gold, and the entire banking system would be at risk of collapse. Volcker removed his glasses and rubbed his eyes and said, John, I hope you are wrong, but I respect you too much to rule out your predictions. John Exeter died in 2006, age 95, and he may not have lived to see the global financial crisis of 2008 unfold, and nor the likely global debt crisis to come. But as with most major economic developments of his time, he predicted it. In this week's SD Bullion Market Update, I'll leave backlinks if you want to learn more about John Exeter's life, legacy, and warnings. If he were alive today, he most certainly would be stacking bullion. That's all for this week. As always, to you out there, take great care of yourselves and those you love. If you enjoyed this content, be sure to give our video a thumbs up. To keep getting bullion-related news and industry insights, be sure to subscribe to our channel. Finally, hit that alert button so you know when we publish fresh content.